Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I am looking forward to this next two hours. I'm very excited to be uh, bringing on some interviews I did with Dr. Larry Crabb. You could call him Dr. Crabb. You could call him Larry. didn't matter what you called him. He was an amazing man. He was uh, part biblical scholar, part wonderful counselor. I have convinced Neil Stavum, the station manager here at Faith Radio, to let me replay two hours of interviews I had with him as a memorial tribute to him, which is about how long it will take me to hand-wax Neil's car. Larry said it doesn't take too much living before we realize that life rarely goes quite the way we want it to. But when things get hard and we don't understand what God is doing, what is our first impulse? Is it to resist him and run? Or is it to trust him even as we tremble in fear? He also added, I need to know God better or I won't make it. Perhaps the most important lessons I learn when I go through dark seasons is this. There is no escape in this life from pain and problems. I can live obediently, practice spiritual disciplines, claim my identity in Christ, but problems still continue. Sometimes with people we really like or admire, we we might tend to assign more relationship than what is there. Now, I would call Larry friend, and I would hope that I would have fallen into that category with him. He was also a professional encourager. After I presented at an event we both spoke at, a week or so later, I received the loveliest letter of encouragement in the mail because it was so unexpected and surprising and was filled with such kind words. It is still for me to this day a keepsake. Larry was a man I admired. You couldn't help it. He spoke with such candor and clarity. Why doesn't everyone talk this way, I would think? We we would live in a better world if we did. Fortunately, Larry spoke a lot. He wrote books and left us with the sweet fragrance of Jesus. He entered eternity on February 28th. His work was important, teaching us always to be closer to God. first book of his I read left a big impact on me. It was called Inside Out. And he said, real change is possible only when you face the realities of your internal life and let God mold you into a person who is free to be honest, courageous, and loving. He also wrote a book, When God's Ways Make No Sense. We talked about that book and Waiting for Heaven, Freedom from the Incurable Addiction to Self. That was his final book he wrote in 2020. I had him on whenever it worked for him. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, he told me he was trusting God through every step of the journey. Larry Crabb, you are a good man. Thank you for blessing me and so many others. If you have one of Larry's books, I I bet you know exactly where that book is in your house. Because if you're like me, it left a big impact on you. 
So let's enjoy a couple hours with Dr. Larry Crabb. Glad you're with me today. We have a great hour coming up. Dr. Larry Crabb is going to be my guest. He's a well-known psychologist. He's a conference and seminar speaker. He's written many, many books, and uh, he'll be joining us for the hour. His recent book is When God's Ways Make No Sense. So, Larry, welcome to the program. Good to be with you. I'm looking forward to the time. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Just so you know, I'm a huge fan, have been for a long time. Well, I appreciate um, hearing that. Yeah. I find calling you Dr. Crab uh, a bit intimidating. So, is it okay with you? If do you mind if I use something a little less lofty, like Your Majesty? <laughs> How about Your Eminence? Not Your Eminence. That's better. That's better. You know, I, I'd be a whole lot more comfortable just with Larry. Uh, I figured. Bit. I figured that would be the case. I saw you speak. I did an event. Uh, I did many of the National Youth Workers Conventions. So, well, oh, yeah. we go way, way, way back. And I, I heard you speak at one of those conferences, and you walked on stage. And I think your opening line was, do you ever feel like a hypocrite? And I think everyone kind of stopped uh-huh. and thought, what? And I thought, boy, you had everyone's attention. And I thought, I have not heard too many speakers speak so honestly and so uh-huh. uh, be so vulnerable. You're like one of the first speakers I heard that I thought, boy, this guy is vulnerable. <laughs> well, people tell me I'm vulnerable and transparent, but I can tell you this. Sometimes it's pretty well chosen. There are certain things that are only between me and the Lord, but I also want to make clear that the Christian life isn't always, you know, a bed of roses. It can be pretty difficult at times, and you can struggle. I sure do. I'm 74 years old, been a Christian for 60-plus years, and there's still things that don't make a lot of sense to me in places I struggle. And sometimes I feel pretty inadequate and all kind of good stuff, and I just want to find the Lord sufficient and meaningful for all the junk that goes on in me. Yeah. Larry, I, I was reading an article in Christianity Today that was about you, and and the author was saying that, you know, you look at, Crab looks at people with this kind of wonder. He said, beneath behavior, he sees wounds, and beneath wounds, he sees depravity, and beneath depravity, he sees the glorious image of God. I thought, that's oh. that's powerful, really good. I love that. One of my favorite uh, thoughts is that, as a psychologist, as a counselor, that if you if you find a problem that does not require the cross to solve, you haven't yet found the real problem. Hmm. That's good. I'm going to have to yeah, think about that I a little bit later. Yeah, right. It's really a, a bit of a heavy thought, and it's not, it's not how people normally think of the psychology profession, or sometimes even the Christian counseling profession. We Sometimes just look at trying to get people to um, get them feeling better without any real thought of what does it mean to walk the narrow road? What does it mean to follow Jesus even if we don't quite know what he's about? What does it mean to really trust him because he died for us? That's really a big deal. Mm-hmm. And the gospel and the cross makes possible a certain way to live. And I want Christian counselors, and I want me to be the kind of person that when I'm talking to somebody, I want to help them learn what the cross makes possible in their life. Yeah, that's 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 great. All right, let me ask you a couple of questions about your book. Um, how many books sure. is this for for you, by the way? Oh dear, I'm not sure. I think 26. Okay, who's I'm honestly who's counting? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> not me anymore. <laughs> All right, good. Um, 
in in this book, you kind of do an, an honest exploration of our struggle to trust. Um, that's that's a big issue. Trust is the, one of the biggest ones for people. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I think that uh, one of the distinctions I make in the book is between naive trust and wise trust. And I really fear that there's a, a real tendency in all of us, me included, everybody else, I suppose, I want to trust God for what he's not promised to do. I want to assume that he's promised to make me healthy. I want to assume that he's promised that things are going to work out well for me in every moment, that my job's going to go well, that my health is going to be good, that finances are going to be sufficient. And and I think that's naive trust because I'm not sure if God's promised any of that. But what he has promised to do, all we can trust him for, is that no matter what happens in my life, and I'm struggling now with cancer. I talk about that in the book, and I've been struggling for 21 years. And I don't claim healing. I do claim that God can use whatever goes on in my life to form me more into the image of Christ, to basically put him on display by the way that I relate to others. And nothing can happen to me that can get in the way of God's purpose, if that's what his purpose really is. And I want people to trust about that. Like one of the things I've I've said to my wife, I'll be going to see my oncologist literally tomorrow morning. And and I thought this way, that if we get in the car and drive to see my doctor and to look at the last results of the blood work and a CAT scan, that if I were to say to her, hi, I'm trusting God for good news, I think that's a bad sentence. I think a good sentence is I'm praying to God for good news, and God may provide that good news, but he hasn't promised that. And what he has promised is whether it's good news or bad news, he's going to be with me. He's going to sustain me. He's going to give me the ability to love my wife and other people, whether I'm hurting or not. And I'm going to be able, because of the cross and because of the Spirit of God in me, I'm going to be able to bring delight to God. I like Lewis's sentence that we can be an ingredient of the divine happiness. And I can actually live a life. I don't do it all the time. I don't claim to do that. But I know it's potential that whatever news I get tomorrow morning doesn't doesn't disturb the possibility of what I'm to live out the purpose that I have for my life, which is not to be healthy and rich. That's a powerful answer, Your Eminence. And I find that uh-huh. that the, the, the way you phrase that is going to really stick with me probably the rest of my life. Once again, you are you are praying. You're not trusting God for a certain result. You are praying for a certain result. Yes, yes. And that's the difference between wise trust and naive trust. And, um, you know, in the book I talk about um, you know, somebody's somebody's child has problems and and uh, maybe addicted to drugs and uh, not a Christian. And someone says, well, we're, we're trusting God that he'll get over his drugs and find Jesus. And my thought is, no, no, pray to God for that. Mm. And pray to God with all your heart, because of course you want that boy to come to Christ. Of course you want him to get off drugs. Of course you want that parent to be able to look at their child and have great joy. Of course you want that. And of course you make it known to your Heavenly Father but we all know stories of people that don't come to Christ even after we pray for them. They don't get off their drug addiction even after we pray fervently for them. So what can we trust God for? And maybe the core to it is we can trust God to, to, to enable me and anybody else to respond to difficult circumstances in a way that literally glorifies God. And when I talk about glorifying God, I don't want to just sound you know, super religious and out of touch. Because I think to glorify God means to reveal his character by the way I respond to any situation, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I'm speaking to Dr. Larry Crabb. We're going to take a little break and be back with lots more. 
Hi, this is Bill. Thanks for being with me. You are listening today to a memorial tribute to Dr. Larry Crabb. you speaking to dr larry crab we're uh, chatting about his uh, most recent book when god's ways make no sense and i bet all of us have had that experience or are having it right now or will have it so larry do conflicts and fears we face do they help us recognize a, a false faith or do they confirm for us that we're trusting in 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 regarding that we are that, that what we trust in that, that god is going to be true i didn't ask that very well, but you could probably sort that out for me. You're a psychologist. <laughs> I think I got a feel for what you ask, and I think it's a pretty common question. We get fears, we get struggles, we get difficulties, and and it seems to me that we 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 naturally our natural disposition, our natural tendency is to come to God with our fears and uh, and basically say, God, will you make me feel better? We come to God with our problems. God, will you solve them for me? Mm-hmm. And and again, I don't think there's a thing wrong with asking God to, for what we would love to happen, but here's the big but, that we we tend to live our stories, and this is going to be a little complicated too. But we live our we tend to live our lives in between our birth and our death, and we figure that in this life we want God to give us the what we've scripted for this smaller story that goes on between our birth and our death, and God wants us to live in between the cross and the coming. And that's a whole different paradigm. And the script I've written for my smaller story is not a script that God always cooperates with, but he's always advancing the the script he's written for the larger story. So when problems come into my life and difficulties happen and when somebody's somebody's husband has an affair and divorces her and and a job is lost or cancer comes or whatever, all these things that do happen in Christians' lives – that we we've got to become aware that is there something like Paul says in Corinthians first uh, Corinthians second Corinthians actually that I want you to fix your eyes on what you cannot see which at one level sounds like a crazy sentence because you can't see it how do you fix your eyes on it except by the eyes of faith mm-hmm. that maybe God is really up to something in every moment of life he's up to something when the doctor gives you bad news he's up to something when your husband leaves you he's up to something when the job is lost now, what he's up to is conforming us to the image of Christ. And so when troubles come, I, I just want to look at that as not as as, as something to, to uh, as our first goal to end, but to find out what God is doing in the middle of them. And that's the real key, it seems to me, to walk in the narrow road that Jesus says leads to life. Larry, uh, is our first default to question God's goodness when something in our life doesn't sync up with how we think it should? Oh, I think that's I think that's right on target. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that I really emphasize in the book, and I felt almost awkward talking about it this way, but you know, I, I believe with all my heart. I know you do, and every every sincere believer knows this: that when I die, heaven awaits, all because of the value of the blood of Christ. He died on the cross for my sins, so I'm going to heaven. Mm-hmm. So when I say, "Well, God, you're really a good God," because I know it means that when I die, I'm going to live eternally in heaven. It's going to be wonderful. But then the question comes, but how about before I die? And the question is, what good is God now? And it just seems to me that we really, really are, are claiming promises that God has not made. And, um, and that, that, that turns into counterfeit Christianity, and I think that's a huge problem. We, 
um, when, when things don't go well, we, God, uh, we thought if you're good, if you're a good father, that good fathers would, would take care of us. But the problem is, and here's the real issue on my mind, Bill, that am I aware of the deepest desire of my soul? Am I aware of the deepest thirst? Remember John 7, of course, Jesus said, anybody here thirsty? He knew everybody was, but not everybody was aware of it. <laughs> so the question that I hear the Bible asking me or the Spirit of God asking me, what are you thirsty for? And am I thirstier to know the Lord and to reveal him by the way I live? Is that what I'm thirstiest for? And if that's the case, then when problems come, and rather than saying what good is God, I can say I know what good God is. He's good to satisfy the deepest thirst of my soul in this life by giving me all that I need to live the Christian life in a way that glorifies him and brings me joy. And that's Second Peter 1.4 where he's given us everything we need for life and godliness and he we we get rid of we get rid of all the you know, all the the defeat because he he talks about that we're partakers of the divine nature that's one of the biggest verses in the bible for me that i have the actual nature in me that jesus had as he lived as a man and human being here fully god fully man for 33 years and the nature that equipped him to do all that he did for those 33 years, especially the last week of his life, that same nature is in me. And can I start thinking about that when my wife and I have a little struggle? Been married 52 years now, and there's still a few tensions every now and then, you know. And mm-hmm. and what does it mean to live out of the divine nature when there's little tension going on between me and my wife or other friends or disappointments or money problems or whatever? Mm-hmm. Larry, you had um, – there's so many questions I want to ask. So let me start with with – Given the the season of life that you're in right now, you're 74 and you've you're dealing with cancer or have been for years. Um, what what does it mean to experience God in this season for you right now personally? That's a very important and a very deep question. Um, and rather rather than giving just a quick little prepared answer, yeah. let me just think for a moment about that. No, that's fine. Yeah, what does it mean for me to really experience experience God in the middle of um, being an older man now, obviously, and uh, and still struggling with cancer? Can I ask what um, kind of cancer? Uh, yeah, it's it's called gastronoma. It's a very rare kind of cancer. I have five spots in my liver okay. that are tiny, um, but they're slow growing, and it's uh, given. You know, I might die of old age because hey, I'm already old. You know, <laughs> very possible. yeah. I know I'm too I'm too old to die young, so yeah, it's, I get it. <laughs> well, I saw one oncologist who, after examining me, he says, "I can keep you alive until you die." And I, <laughs> I love thought, it. <laughs> yeah, no, gracious, you went to medical school for that. I wondered, you know. <laughs> um, but I think when I talk about experiencing God, what what I want to say is that it doesn't mean that I'm going to feel His presence in the way that I always want to. Mm-hmm. I sometimes do, of course. There are times I. I'm just overwhelmed with the fact that he sees me where I am. He sees me at my worst. He knows everything that's in me that's not good, and he's still crazy about me. I know. And when I think like that, there's times that I just feel a joy kind of erupt and an energy in my life, and I want to go out and live for him better than I ever have before. And so I do experience God in that way. But more consistently, I would I would claim not that I experience him as a pleasurable feeling, but I experience him as something, as, as a person who has revealed his truth to me in the Scripture. And I think my deepest experience of God comes from spending time in the Scripture 
and believing what's there and saying, yes, he is faithful, he is good, he does have a plan, he is holy, he knows what he's doing, he is sovereign. And when I, when I, when I sit back and think about that and read the scriptures and, and sit, sit before the Lord, to me, experiencing God means resting in the truth of what the Bible says. And every now and then, I wish it were all the time, but every now and then I feel his presence in a wonderful way, but I don't depend on that. Okay. Um, you you also uh, went had some counsel, a uh, friend, or there was someone who kind of helped you through this time that w- played a pretty key part in this. Um, can you share that story? Oh yeah, are you talking about uh, Dr. James Houston? Is that the man you're thinking of? Well, here? I don't I don't know who who it is, uh, but okay. I I did get some information about someone who helped walk you through this season. Yeah, well, I, there's been several people that have meant the world to me. My wife, number one, of course, but um, but there's a man named uh, Dr. James Houston. He, he's 95 years old. He was a personal student of C.S. Lewis, which really impresses me. No kidding. Um, yeah, he was. He was the founder of Regent College in Vancouver, and I've been an adjunct professor there a time or two, and I've got to know Dr. Houston. He likes me to call him Jim, but I respect him so much I have a hard time calling him Jim. But here's, I'll give you two stories that are very help help me um, and, and through some of my dark days, when, when I first had cancer in 1997, I was in the hospital for three weeks, major surgery, complications, all sorts of things, feeding tubes, IVs in both arms. And Dr. Houston called, and I reached over to pick up the phone and said rather weakly, because I was kind of weak at the time, hello. And he said, oh, Larry, this is Jim Houston calling. And I said, oh, Dr. Houston, how kind of you to call. And he said, up here at Regent College, we've heard that you have cancer. And I've heard so many people say, poor Larry, poor Larry, he has cancer. And I'm calling Larry to say that I'm not calling, I'm not saying poor Larry. I'm saying privileged Larry. Yes, privileged Larry is how he put it. And then he went on to say, Larry, you are in commander training. And I wanted to tell you that. And then he hung up. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I sat back in my hospital bed and I laughed just like you laughed. Oh, yeah, that's I thought, so funny. what kind of encouragement is that? Gosh, that's and funny. what it made me realize is God is at work in my darkest, deepest, most miserable moment. Mm. And then when it came back in, in 2000, oh, I don't know what is 2010, I guess, when it came back again for the second time, um, he wrote me a little note. And the note was, I, I memorized it. It's one of the best letters I've ever received. He said, uh, Dear Larry, how grievous to learn that your cancer has returned, but no doubt you've heard the words of Samuel Johnson that nothing quite clears the mind like a walk up the gallows. I am so looking forward to how your clear mind is going to release you to do more work for the kingdom. Oh, that's spectacular, <laughs> thought, Larry. That's incredible that's to me. spectacular. But I, I loved it. Yeah. Okay. We'll take a short break and be back uh, with more with Larry Crabb in just a minute. Hi, this is Bill. Thanks for being with me. You are listening today to a memorial tribute to Dr. Larry Crabb. 
See, we were not gone very long. I love my job. Days like this, I love it even more. I have Dr. Larry Crabb on our studio line, and he has uh, written a book called When God's Ways Make No Sense, and we all have had those experiences when we just are scratching our heads going, this makes no sense. And, uh, Larry, I, I want you to talk a little bit about transformation. Um, that's uh, another big one I think we all deal with, um, what it takes to become like Christ. Now, that's a big topic. I know. That's why I started it at the top of the next half hour here. <laughs> and I would say one thing we got to be clear on as we start talking about this briefly, it's a lifelong process. And I've talked to some of the older saints, people like Dr. J.I. Packer, Jim Hooson included. I didn't hear it straight from Billy Graham, but I heard he said this once, that uh, these three men in their older age um, have said that I've gotten, I have farther to go in my sanctification than I've already come. And when I hear something like that, I realize that I need to be very aware that to become like Jesus is really a big deal. Because naturally, I'm not like him at all. But now that I'm a Christian, I have the potential to grow into his likeness, but it takes a long time. And here's, here's what I would say, that, that I don't know if anything changes the human soul in the right direction more than looking bad in the presence of love. The deepest desire in my soul is I want somebody to see me exactly as I am and still to want to be with me. You know, to use a terrible example, if I have bad breath, my wife doesn't want to kiss me. Mm-hmm. And I think I understand that rather deeply. <laughs> my soul, my personality, my way of living, sometimes there's bad breath and all of that. And God sees it all. And I can turn some people off with how, oh, I can be sarcastic. I can have a little nasty little sentence. I can be a little judgmental at times. I hope not too often, but I'm certainly capable of it. But I can never turn God off. He sees me at my worst, and he says, I really do love you. I had to pay a real price in order for me able to pour out my love on you because you are now forgiven. You're now my child. I'm now your father, and nothing's going to change that. And when I understand that the deepest desire of my soul is met only in Christ, it makes me it, – it, it draws me to him. And the other thing that is deep in my soul – I want to have a sense of purpose to my life. I don't want to just get up in the morning and say, all right, I got a job to do, and, well, I'll write another book, or, oh, I don't know, I'll talk to somebody about their messed up life or something. <laughs> I, I want something to, that, that matters, and that matters eternally. And God says, well, I'm telling a larger story. You want to join up? And when I realize that I, I can have a life that matters, one of my favorite Bible verses, I got a bunch of them, as you do and everybody does, but Philippians one ten, Paul is in prison under house arrest, and he's writing to the Philippians, and he says in, in 110, I want you to understand what really matters. And then the verse follows up, not with how, you know, how, how, how healthy you are or what kind of job you have, but are you experiencing the fruit of righteousness in your life? Do you know what it means to be living out the, the life of Christ by the way you relate? That's what he's emphasizing. That's what really matters. So I long for purpose, and I long for love. And the more I realize that's what I get in Christ, the more I'm drawn to him, and the more I want to imitate him. The more I, the more I want to give that kind of uh, ability, uh, or that's the wrong word to use, but I, I want to provide that with, to, to other people. I want my wife to know that even at times of conflict, and there are some, even after 52 years of marriage, that at times of conflict, I am so for her. 
and I delight in her, and she does that well with me, and I'm looking to do it better than ever with her. And I want my kids, um, my kids are now 50 and 47, um, and my grandkids, I want them to know that when they really annoy me, that I'm I'm there for them. Yeah, there's there's room for discipline, of course. I believe that. There's room for rebuke. There's room for cautioning. There's room for all sorts of things, but always in a spirit of love. And I think transformation takes place centrally by understanding the character of Christ and what he does for the human soul. Now, of course, in addition to that, you need to be with people. You need to be, you know, hearing God's word in church. You need to be spending time in the word. You need to be practicing spiritual disciplines and praying, of course. I mean, all of that's, all of that's important. But, but the issue is not just here's a list of things to do, but here's a person to enjoy. Mm, wow, that's great. Larry, did you uh, have something, did you learn something early on in your Christian faith that, that to this day is now brighter in your mind than, than anything else? That's a great question. Because I, I, I remember no. when, when I was in seventh grade, I had a Bible study, and the teacher said, develop a habit of giving thanks and gratitude for things that are never going to change. Christ died for your sins. That's never going to change. Uh, he rose from the dead. That's never going to change. Your name is written in the book of life if you've come to faith in Christ. That will never change. So when when other circumstances in your life change, you've developed a muscle, a habit of gratitude that, well, okay, this stuff is not pleasant, but look at what I give gratitude and thanks for every day. No, that doesn't change. Beautiful. No, doesn't change. That's God's word. That's God's truth. That never, never changes. Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I think as you say that, what you're bringing to my mind is I am very, very grateful, profoundly grateful for my father and for my mother, but I'm thinking of my father at the moment, because um, I, I think Dad, in his own way, he's been with the Lord now for a number of years, but in his own way, he was living out what you're just saying, that being grateful for what he knows is true that will not change, even when life circumstances don't go so well. Because he was a guy that that every night when he came home from work, he'd had a job that... Um, he worked really hard at he. His father died when he was five years old. He never had a chance to go to college. He was a very bright man. He could have gotten a PhD and graduated first in his class, but never had the opportunity. And he had a difficult job, but he made a living for his family. But he would come home at night, and I, I can recall that so many many evenings I would find him in his chair in front of the fireplace, reading the Bible. And as an eight, nine-year-old kid, I'm thinking, why do you spend time with that? There's a television, for goodness <laughs> sakes. There's lots of good shows. He and I love to watch the Red Skelton show. That goes oh, yeah. back in time. Oh, yeah. And one night it was on, and Dad and I was going to come in to watch it with me. I thought he was. And he and I, I yelled out, to, hey, Dad, Red Skelton's on. Come on in. He says, I'm going to skip it tonight, Larry. And I had no idea why, so I had to find out why. And he was in his chair, and I snuck up behind him to see what he was doing. And he was reading. I looked over his shoulder, and this is a true story. He not only was reading the Bible, he was reading Leviticus. <laughs> uh, and I grabbed my Bible, I turned to Leviticus, I read it for two minutes, got bored silly, and went and watched the Red Skelton show. Yeah. <laughs> but something that, that got embedded in me, there's something in this Word of God that's eternal and unchanging that sustains my father in all of the disappointments and difficulties of his life, and there were many. Mm -hmm. Larry, what was uh, something that you learned from your mother that still burns in your heart today? Oh, another good question. Uh, there's a bunch of things. Let me just think for a moment. And I think in my mother, um, she, she had um, a difficult background. Um, she had an alcoholic mother. I didn't know that my grandmother <clears throat> was an alcoholic until I was an adult. 
<clears throat> my grandfather, her dad, was a very strong Christian, but very stern, and didn't come across as a very tender man. And and I think mother, um, coming out of that, what impressed me the most about mother is in in the middle of never being really affirmed in the way that little girls would love to be when she was a little girl on through teenage years, she didn't get the kind of involvement from her father or from her mother that every young woman would love to receive. But somehow she found a very important part of who she is as a woman to mother me in a way that was incredibly faithful. She was there for me in profound ways. Um, And I think I look back on mom and think there was a woman who in the middle of some internal struggles still knew what it meant to be faithful to her calling, um, a variety of callings, but her calling as, as being my mother, and I'm forever grateful for that. That's lovely. Um, Larry, I'm just curious. Now, as you go through this season of cancer, you, I've heard people say, uh, you know, this is going to sound nuts, but this has, like, been the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I always go, yeah, that does sound nuts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> has there been an unexpected blessing that's come out of this for you? Oh, no question about it. You know, I don't want to say it glibly, hey, it's been the best thing that happened right, to me. Right. I think the best thing ever happened to me after uh, after salvation was meeting my wife when I was 10 years old. <laughs> and um, we had our first date at 12 and and got married at 21. So the, the second biggest blessing in my life is, is my wife. Um, but is cancer a blessing in my life? Well, let me tell you this. I wish I didn't have it. Uh, I wish I were healthy. But given the fact that this is what I have and this is where I am, I am grateful, and I really can say this very sincerely, almost emotionally, it might get me crying here, that in the middle of my cancer, in the middle of my difficulty, it's really put me more in touch with what I most deeply believe. And I really, I deeply believe that there's that, and what I like to call unthwarted sovereignty. God is sovereign. I don't believe that means he caused my cancer, but I do believe it means that nothing will ever happen to me that he cannot use. It's not going to thwart his purposes for me. My cancer is not going to thwart his purposes for me because his purpose for me is not necessarily good health. His purpose for me is to become like Christ. And and cancer forces me to believe that more deeply. And the more I believe that, the more I'm really grateful that these struggles that I have with health, and i got some other things too, but they really put me at a crossroads. Either tell God he's not very good and I'm going to figure out my own life and make it work as best I can whether you want to help me or not, God, or... I can come to him and say, for goodness sakes, if you died for me, I can't believe you don't love me. So I guess you're able to work through whatever happens, and I can trust you for that. Mm, another. That's beautiful. All right. I just got a, an email from a listener, uh, Mary, and she said, I heard Larry at Westwood years ago and had a major shift in my faith. He showed us that we Western Christians often worship the blessings instead of the blesser. And mm. also God is not linear. Just because I do A doesn't mean he has to do B. These were wonderful ahas. Nice job, Larry. I'm so grateful to hear that. <laughs> I really am. You know, I'm, I stand on the shoulder of giants and once in a while I'll say something intelligent. Because <laughs> um, this, this idea that, uh, that we, we, we so easily worship the, the blessings and not the blesser, I stole that from um, a man that uh, was at the seminary where I was teaching for a number of years, a man named Dr. Charles Smith. And and he's the one that went through some great difficulties, a lot of great difficulties. I saw him just weeping his eyes out one day in his office over some really, really hard things. And Chuck was the one who said to me, oh, Larry, don't don't, don't worship the blessings that come from God. Worship the blesser. 
And uh, that that sentence struck with me. So when I said that in the in the hearing of Mary, That's you can lovely. be grateful to Dr. Smith for it. Okay, um, Larry, talk about community. Um, and I think there's more and more people that are feeling more isolated, even though there's more reason to feel connected because of social media and everything else. But the the truth is, just the opposite happens. They're they're more isolated. And and I think real community is is the obviously part of the way we experience God to be, uh, you know, growing our faith. So can you speak to that a little bit? No, yeah. Why does the Lord's Prayer begin not by saying my Father, but our Father? Mm. And why in Hebrews 4, when it says, um, um, I'm blocking out now, Hebrews 10.28, Hebrews 10.24, that is, where he says, I want you to assemble yourselves together. Don't forsake getting together. And, And then he says, and when you get together, this is what I want you to do. This is community. When you get together, I want you to think hard. Attend, I think it's one of the translations, but the literal Greek there means to think really hard. And this is how it goes on to say, think really hard about how to provoke others to love and good deeds. I believe the essence of community, when I'm with other believers, hopefully in church or at other times during the week, having lunch with a good friend, whoever it might be, certainly with my wife and small groups. We've been in a spiritual formation group now for about 15 years, uh, three couples that get together as often as we can. And to me, the community that makes the difference is can I look at somebody else with a vision for who the Spirit wants to transform them into? Who are they? What are their potentials? What are their uniquenesses? What are their gifts? What is their calling? And how can I facilitate their longing for that by enjoying them, by giving them feedback as to how they come across in positive ways, maybe offering difficulties, but always in a spirit of love. But if I can have a vision for somebody and relate to them on the basis of that vision, then we have community. Mm. And when I can share that what is going on in my life and not live in pretense, not when people say, how are you? Fine, thanks. That's great. No, but how are you? And we have a group where when they ask, how are you? They're really wondering, how's your soul doing? And one of the greatest gifts the group gave me was, oh, it goes back a number of years now, it was my birthday. And they said to me when we gathered together for one of our spiritual formation times, um, the <laughs> the group had um, decided ahead of time that the gift they were going to give me was this. They said, Larry, for the next two hours, I want you to talk about your soul and all that's happening in you, good and bad. <laughs> and I said, you're kidding me, two hours of that? And I said, well, yeah, that's what we want. And I did that for two hours, and I felt known, and I felt wanted, and I felt encouraged. So to know each other, to know each other at a deep level, the good, the bad, the ugly, and to see it all in the context of the gospel. And when communities functioning like that, it's really something good. Wow, this is why I agree to never go to birthday parties of any kind. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, let me take a short break. Be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Bill. Thanks for being with me. You are listening today to a memorial tribute to Dr. Larry Crabb. Speaking to Dr. Larry Crabb, talking about his book, When God Makes No Sense. And when you read that book, When God makes no sense, it feeds believers the meal they don't know they're hungry for. A malnourished Christian can receive the nourishment they need um, and don't know they lack. 
especially when you're confronted by circumstances that you can't understand. Because I think that's when you get uh, challenged and you question your faith and you wonder where God is and is God good and can I trust him? And that happens when uncertainty comes into your life or difficult circumstances. And uh, Larry's, you've got a big cancer appointment tomorrow. I will be specifically on my knees praying for you tonight. I so appreciate that. I really, really I really do. mean it, too. I really will be doing that. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. But when, when circumstances come into our lives um, and all of a sudden we, we start to panic, we shouldn't panic, should we? We shouldn't run away from God. We should run towards him. Absolutely. There's a, there's a, there's a phrase that's all through the Old Testament about people that, that tear their robes. Remember Job when things got really bad and he lost his children after a lot of difficulties and his health went down the tubes and, and uh, it says he tore his robes. And um, but it's interesting to me that there was one person in the Old Testament that never tore, tore their robes. And the word and the whole phrase for tearing their robes is kind of to panic, and to say, "Oh, this is terrible. I can't handle it." It's like we would say pulling your hair out. That'd be a little similar kind of a phrase we have in our modern language. But tearing robes was something in the old old world Hebrew world. But there was one person who was who was told they must never tear their robes, and that was the high priest in the uh, Levitical economy. The, the the instructions for the clothing for the priest uh, was required that the that the seamstress would would uh, would would double seam the collar around the robe so in frustration he would not pull at his robe and tear it <laughs> he was never to, never to have a torn robe and the reason is because he was in the presence of God when he's the only one in the Old Testament that was allowed to go into the holy of holies in the tabernacle. But in New Testament terms, we can approach God. Hebrews is full of it. And therefore, when I'm in the presence of God, there's never a reason to tear my robe. I feel like it sometimes. I feel like saying, all is lost. This is terrible. I remember once I had a tax bill that completely depleted my resources. And I drove to the mountains, and I sat on the edge of a of a big cliff looking at the mountains in Colorado and saying, God, what am I going to do? I'm broke. I have no idea what to do. But it became very clear to me that uh, that tearing the robe has no place, even when financial disaster kind of hits you. God, are you still faithful? Do you still love me? Are you going to be with me? Do you have a purpose in all this? And if that's really the case, and I'm in touch with what I want most in life, to honor you, to delight you, to become more like your son, then there's never a reason to panic. Mm. Even though we're going to feel it at times. And I don't want people to pretend that they're feeling great when they're not. If they're feeling scared to death, admit it. Talk to God about it. But come to God, as, as you said. Don't run away, but go to him. Yeah. At the last break, Larry, uh, Rebecca, our producer, said, she looked at me and she said, he's just my new favorite person. And I, <laughs> said, <laughs> and I said, well, he's been one of my favorites for like a long, long time. And I said, do you, uh, do you have a question for Larry? And she said, I sure do. Yes. So, Rebecca? Bill, you were not supposed to tell that my husband is listening. Okay. So, I'm sorry. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Larry, you're, you are my new favorite person. Uh, and I think I, I'm just wondering a bit about how this, what this looks like to practice this kind of trust, because just to put myself out there, I want to grow in trust. But like you said, there's a difference between naive trust, where we just kind of hope everything works out. And it's almost like we're ignoring the circumstances that are contrary to that picture. I want to grow yes. in, in the wise trust. And I'm wondering if you have some advice about ways to practice that and what that can, can start to look like as we grow in faith. You know, I wrote, a, I wrote a book some time ago called Shattered Dreams, God's Route to Joy. And one of the major things that, 
occurred to me when I was reading that. Actually, it's a story of Ruth, the Bible story of Ruth. But the point that I was making there, and I think I'd make it now in response to your awfully important question, that um, never pretend that you're feeling what you don't feel. Always be very, very um, alive in the present and bring whatever's going on in you to the Lord, um, whether it's your, whether you're angry at Him, whether you're frustrated about something. Never pretend. Never pretend you're more spiritual than you are. But bring that to the Lord and tell Him exactly what's going on. He knows what's going on. But as Lewis C.S. Lewis defines prayer, it's taking part in the it's it's it's, it's, it's taking part in the process of being known that I can come to God, and I think one of the things that I've learned over the years is to come to him exactly where I am because he meets me. And this is the important sentence. That is, if we had an hour, I could talk more about it, but just very briefly I put it this way, that God meets me where I am, not where I pretend to be, and God meets me where I am, not where I wish I were. And when I come to him exactly where I am and get very raw in my honesty with him, then he's not going to turn away. He's going to say, I'm glad you're letting me meet you at the deepest level, and I intend to do things with you. Don't try so hard to become a better person. Don't try so hard to get spiritually formed. My spirit goes to work. I want you to be vulnerable. I want you to be helpless. I want you to feel inadequate, and I want you to come to me with all of that. And then over time, if you're going to be patient with me, God speaking, you're going to start experiencing something of the aliveness of the Spirit going on in you. And you're going to wake up one morning and you're going to say, I think that was God working in me at that moment. Um, I could tell a long story, but I won't take time to do that. But when I was in the hospital, one of my hospital visits with cancer, I was really, really struggling. Things were not going well. I was frustrated. I was angry. And I said, God, what good are you right now? because you're not answering any of my prayers. And what I really sensed from God at that point was, Larry, my son adored worse than you've ever experienced, and while he was hanging on the cross, he took care of his mother. While he was hanging on the cross, he called the thief to go to heaven with him. While he's hanging on the cross, all seven things that he said were radically other-centered. You have that power. That's what I've done for you. And in my worst moment, I sensed that, and I went back to my hospital bed, still hurting. The nurse came in, and it was a miracle of grace. I was kind to her. I was nice to her. I didn't yell at her, you know, get in here and take care of me. What's the matter with you? I didn't do that. I actually had a moment where the Spirit of God took over me, and I was able to reflect something of the work of God, but only after I got very, very real with God. And one more thing, if I can say very briefly, there's only one of the Gospels where we're told that when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane crying, that the angel came to strengthen him. I think it's Luke, I'm not sure. But only one of the Gospels says that the angel came to strengthen the Lord. And right after he was strengthened by the angel, the next thing that he did was cry harder. That's when he shed great drops of blood. God strengthens me to be alive to where I am so he can meet me there. That, to me, is very central and becoming the kind of woman that you long to be, the kind of man I long to be. Uh, tremendous, Larry. Um, you've really pulled the curtain back for us to help us in, and to encourage us to have real raw intimacy with Christ. I mean, you, yes. this is like you've been a, the ultimate cheerleader today to say, no, go there with what you have and who you are, not who you think you should be. And I think we, we pray sometimes in a way that represents the kind of Christian we think we should be. 
not where yes. we're at. Um, I mean, I look at Psalm 88 where Heman's crying out to God, what good are you? I'm happier being <laughs> asleep than I am in your presence. Huh. And that's the only psalm of all 150 of them that ends without a positive note. There's no hope at the end of of 88. None. Not at all. No. Not at all. That's huge. It's really important. And yet God has big enough shoulders to put that in the Bible and just let it hang there. Because if I was him, <laughs> I wouldn't have included Psalm 88 because it has no hope. Exactly. Yes, I could have given, given God some real suggestions in writing a better book. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Apparently he doesn't think I, <laughs> I have the wisdom to do that. He didn't consult us, Larry. I can tell you that right now. He sure does now. We're not members of the Trinity. We're just people that are saved by grace. Yeah, but doesn't he let, Doesn't he reveal this is how desperate men are? This is how they act when they're desperate? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's all yeah. through the Scriptures. That's that's where I take in the Bible. You know, you, you look at Jonah, who uh, he told Jonah, I want you to go give Nineveh a chance to repent. And Jonah says, wait a minute, Israel's doing pretty good right now, and I was a prophet to them giving them good news a little couple, little time ago. And now you want me to give Jonah, Nineveh rather, our biggest enemy that could destroy Israel, the nation of Syria, Nineveh was a capital, you want me to give them a chance to repent, and if they don't repent, you're going to destroy them. I want you to destroy them. God, your ways make no sense to me. And Jonah said, the dickens with it. I'm going to resign my role as prophet and run off the Tarshish. <laughs> and, Larry, and that's just a big yeah, mistake. You're just a gift. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'll be on my knees tonight praying for your appointment tomorrow. And his book is When God Makes No Sense. Dr. Larry Crabb has been my guest. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.